0: Hello and welcome to Reproductive Conversations, the podcast hosted by the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, (BPass). We are delighted to welcome you back as we continue our series of discussions centred around reproductive choice, from the contraception needed to avoid conception, right the way through to how to feed a newborn baby, and of course, the continued fight for abortion rights, which has never felt more important. I'm your host, Claire Murphy, and I'm here with my co-host, Catherine O'Brien. Hello, Catherine.
1: Hi, Claire. It's great to be here, and I'm really looking forward to our discussions today. At a time when reproductive rights are, sadly, moving backwards and not forwards in many parts of the world... It's only fitting that today we're going to be speaking with two of the trailblazing women who were at the forefront of the battles for reproductive choice back in the 1960s and 1970s. As our episode title suggests, we truly are standing on the shoulders of absolute giants. We really
0: are. And, you know, in the wake of the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, women's constitutional right to abortion in the US, which was just obliterated, we'll also be talking to Diane Monday, who successfully campaigned for the landmark 1967 Abortion Act in Britain, which changed so many women's lives. We're also going to be exploring the moral panic and controversy that surrounded the launch of at-home pregnancy tests in America. We'll be speaking to Margaret Crane, who herself created the first at-home pregnancy test for women in 1971. So we're going back to the 1960s and 70s to revisit some of these key battles for reproductive rights while keeping our eyes firmly on what's happening right now. We'll find out what's changed, I think we're also going to find out what hasn't in the past 60 years and what lessons we can learn from them at this crucial moment in the fight for abortion rights.
1: Don't you think, Claire, that thanks to the trailblazing work of individuals such as the guests we're speaking to today, we've come so far in half a century and yet we still have a long way to go? The recent decision from the US Supreme Court has demonstrated that reproductive rights don't automatically roll forward. They can also be rolled back.
0: Yes, Catherine, that's exactly what we're learning. And that's why I think it matters so much to understand the perspectives and experiences of those true pioneers who fought those fights before us decades ago.
1: Well, speaking of true pioneers, We're delighted to be joined today by Diane Munday, who was instrumental in passing the 1967 Abortion Act, which gave women the ability to access safe, legal abortion care in Great Britain. Hi, Diane. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're so pleased that you're able to speak uh, remotely, especially because, as you know, you are such a personal hero of mine. So thank you so much for joining. So, Diane, Can you please take us back and tell us why you first became involved in the campaign for abortion rights over 65 years ago?
2: Back in 1960, I was a happily married woman with three sons all under the age of five and clear that my family was complete. Then to my absolute horror, I found myself pregnant again. This was the time before there was a pill. Contraception was quite crude, and being excessively fertile, uh, which is now seen to be desirable, was a real curse. Immediately, I knew I was pregnant. I knew That there was no way I could or would have another child. I'm a diabetic. I had huge babies. I had quite difficult pregnancies. And I, in fact, managed to get an appointment with a professor of gynecology at the London Teaching Hospital um, who was known to be sympathetic two pregnant women. In fact, it was an appalling experience. Fortunately, I'd asked around and been given the details of a Harley Street doctor, a fora NHS consultant, who did private abortions. Interestingly, many years later, I actually went to him for donation for the Abortion or Home Association. And I asked him why he had taken on doing quasi-legal abortions. He told me that as a young doctor, a young woman had come to him asking for an abortion. She gave her the usual story that she loved it was when she was born. And that night, she killed herself. He said he had never forgotten the feeling that by turning her away, he had killed her as surely as if he'd had a gun and shot her. He quoted me thinking this the appointment with a psychiatrist that would certify that I'm suicidal and a further 140 pounds for the fees for his his work and a private nursing home. In today's money, that is around two and a half thousand pounds. We managed to scrape it together, holiday money for my mother. And when I came round from the anaesthetic, I was remembering another young woman who I'd known some years earlier. She was also married with three young children. But she died from a backstreet abortion. I was alive, but her husband was a widower, and her children were motherless because she did not have the child. And I child to myself then. I couldn't thank God, because I don't believe in God, but I vowed to myself that I would if necessarily spend the rest of my life campaigning so that women who did not have the privilege of money to have the same choice as others who could afford to buy their health and their safety. That year, I went to the annual general meeting of the Abortion Law Reform Association and for the first time stood up and said in public, I have had an abortion. Within a year, I was on, elected onto the executive committee, and the rest of it is now history.
1: So, you know, you mentioned there that women without the financial privilege of a checkbook to wave in the face of a Harley Street doctor were literally dying as a result of a lack of access to safe, legal abortion care. So I suppose it's sort of hard today to imagine how people could be opposed to providing that care to prevent women dying and suffering. So where did your opposition come from and what were their main arguments against safe legal abortion in the 1960s?
2: The arguments were then, and still are, religion-based in the whole, all over the world. The idea of those who oppose abortion is that life begins at inception that from that moment there is a new human being that God gives life and therefore only God can take it away. It's a biological a scientific nonsense, but nevertheless that is the main driver. In the very early days of the campaign, back in the 60s, most anti-abortion campaigners fairly honest about this, but as we, the pro-choice people, gained support, they recognised that their religious arguments really did not carry much sway with a large and growing number of people. So they invented narratives about harm to women in the way that we were using narratives about the benefit to women of having legal abortion. So before and just after the 1767 Abortion Act, it was increasingly claimed that abortion, even in the hands of doctors, was a dangerous procedure. Examples cited that even when pregnancies were ended by qualified doctors, women died, or if they survived, they were sterile for the rest of their lives. Indeed, there was a period, I remember well, when some of those speakers claimed in the certain speech that many had a child within a year of the abortion because they were so distressed at having killed the child, whilst at the same time, placing those abortion cause widespread sterility. And the contradiction between those two arguments never seemed to make any difference to them. But quite soon, after abortion became legal, um, statistics started becoming available, showing that, in fact, Abortion, legal abortion, was much safer, nine times as safe as childbirth, so they really couldn't continue using that argument. So then they turned over to claim that while physical health was not necessarily affected, mental health was damaged by the realisation that the mother had killed a child. Again, research showed that most women were grateful for having been able to have safely and their pregnancies, whilst proportionately more women were admitted to psychiatric hospitals for postnatal depression than for post-abortion depression. So, slowly, we were able to kill off the argument
1: and Diane, do you see parallels between those arguments in sort of the early days of safe, legal abortion care and the arguments that are still used by anti-abortion activists today? Oh, yes.
2: They're the same arguments today. Many, many parallels with that. Really, apart from these huge changes A method of communication, it's all much the same. Same old arguments, very, very boring. What is not different is that women will die and others be maimed for life. And so today, yes, their propaganda is the same, but it
1: is more easily
2: circulated and to a bigger audience.
1: Indeed, yes. And absolutely, as we, you know, are now in the wake of the appalling decision from the Supreme Court to revoke Roe v. Wade, you know, absolutely, we can still see that this argument that, you know, by banning abortion, you stop abortions happening is still being, as you say, peddled by, by the anti-abortion groups. And just sort of going back to, to when the 67 Act was, was passed, the the 1967 Abortion Act, that was the legal bedrock for women's access to abortion care in Great Britain, and even today it's still the legal bedrock. So at the time that the Act was passed, did you imagine that it would still be in force today?
2: No, I was very naive. I objected very strongly to two of the clauses, that we conceded to the anti-abortion lobby in order to get the 1960s of Act on the statute books. And they were the need for two doctors to certify if the woman's circumstances fell within certain laid down, down perimeters. I objected then, I believe passionately, as I still do, that the only person in the position to decide whether to continue or stop a pregnancy is the pregnant woman herself. And that the nonsense of two doctors who may well have never seen her before and never see her again, making the decision that would Have such an impact on hers and her family's lives, were given that. That still today is in our law. I was also very distressed by the fact we conceded to exclude Northern Ireland from the provision of the law. That is still being argued about. But I did think that. We would in time get rid of those objections. There have, in fact, um, been more than 50 attacks on the abortion aid, and the first came within a year of it being passed. No, I am disappointed and sad, and though the 67 has benefited millions of women, and set the pattern for other countries, I still regret that we had to concede certain points. But it has to be your generation that now takes on the battle. I'm in my 90s. I'm running out of steam. And I think my campaign days are coming to an end.
1: Well, Diane, I will gladly, and BPAS will gladly take on the baton. Thank you so much for for joining us today, Diane. I'm going to repeat that you are one of my absolute heroes. And I'm so excited about continuing the fight for abortion rights that you, you began over 60 years ago. Wow, Catherine, what a heroine she is. Oh, absolutely. I can't say enough times what a personal hero she is of mine. And that really was a, a rallying call to the pro-choice majority to, to make our voices heard and to get on with progressing our abortion law in this country.
0: So our next guest is Margaret Crane, known as Meg, an American inventor and graphic designer who lives in New York and who created the first at-home pregnancy test for women. This is a technology that we take for granted today, and it's hard for us to imagine that at the time this was in fact a controversial development, both in the US and in the UK when it was launched 50 years ago. Indeed, Boots the Chemist wouldn't stock it. Hi Meg, it's a real pleasure to have you join us today down the line from New York. Oh,
3: thanks, wonderful to be with you, really. I'm very impressed with your organisation.
0: Oh, that's so kind. Well, we're very impressed by you. And one of the first things I wanted to to talk to you about is the work you've done for women. And tell us, us first of all, how you came up with the idea for the first at-home pregnancy test kit and really how you came to invent it.
3: Well, I was working for a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey as a freelance graphic designer. And, um, and... I didn't normally go to the laboratory, but I was there one day for what I was working on, and I saw a row of test tubes hanging on the wall. They were coated in some way, and they were hanging over a mirrored surface. And I'd asked what they were about, and I said, well, those are our pregnancy tests. The doctors would send us a sample of women's urine, and um, we would test the urine and get the response back to the woman. And um, of course, that would take a bit of time by the time she heard whether she was pregnant or not a few weeks would have gone by that's how i came about and i thought looking at this that certainly that looks so simple that maybe with all the proper equipment this could be done women could do this herself and that would be so amazing so um i just stuck with that in mind all the time that was just stay with me permanently let's say
0: well i mean it's been an absolutely transformative piece of technology it's like we can't imagine life without it now so so you saw these test tubes and you thought i know that women can do this for themselves like, you know I, I strongly suspect women could do this for themselves at, at home so so what did you do next
3: um i am um, <laughs> uh in another day or so i tried to work out a little idea for how this could be done planning for the product itself and um but I, before getting anything really together, I went to one of the executives and said, you know, um, you're, I'm working on cosmetics here, but couldn't, wouldn't it be possible for you to be selling these pregnancy tests to women directly? And the man was very upset about that. <laughs> he said, um, no, no, no way. Um, uh, we can't do that. Uh, we would lose our doctor business and other business that would just put us out of business altogether And don't even think about that so um, i thought about that (laughs) anyway and um so i spent some time trying to make a prototype for it Uh, i was working in a printer's shop at night and i had a a space there and um i um, worked out a couple of ideas with cardboard and and plastic but it wasn't quite right and one day i was back in my office at the pharmaceutical company and I had in front of me a plastic, clear plastic box that I got from a Japanese store in New York, and it was perfect. I mean, it just happened to be exactly right. It had a cap which could be used to collect the urine. So I immediately went to try to fit it out for the test tube and the eyedropper, which meant putting a little shelf in the top. And, and I used a piece of mylar at the bottom to be reflected as a mirror. And, um, then I brought this back to the executive and he said, oh, well, it's <laughs> kind of elegant, but um, I, I did mention that we shouldn't be, you shouldn't be working on something like this. We can't do it. Uh, please put your mind back on your, your business here. And so um, I was quite upset by that, but I still knew it was going to happen somehow. If this company couldn't do it, maybe some other company could, but I wouldn't know where at that point. So that's how that began.
0: And what do you think was the resistance in, in terms of the company at, at, at that time? So you you talked about the, um you know, that they already had a sort of thriving business with doctors. What were some of the reservations about developing this as, as something that women would be able to use themselves?
3: I think uh, when it got further down the line and we actually started to work on something, a lot of the other people thought that women would not be able to do this themselves. It would just be too complicated. And, um, uh, other people thought it, had moral uh, concerns about it, thinking this was something only doctors had the right to do. And um, they didn't think that, that women should be in doing this themselves. They'd be out of their hands. They wouldn't know how to respond to a, a positive or negative re- result. And the company was just very, uh, they didn't want to think further on this. However, uh, there came a time when some of the executives went to their usual meetings in the Netherlands, the parent company. And somebody actually brought this up almost like a joke that somebody in our company thought this would be a good idea for women to do themselves. And the Dutch people thought this was great. And so, and this was about half a year later, if not more, they gave the company money to do a a, um, uh, a test and uh, to think about this as a serious product. So, I heard that, but I didn't hear anything more about it until one day there was a, um, a meeting at the uh, conference room and some men who were brought in to do the prototypes for this were going to show their work. And I had no idea that they'd been even asked to do this. So I crashed that meeting, got there early and um, put mine on the table after these guys put theirs on the table. Uh, the room was filled with about maybe a half a dozen or more male executives. Not a single other woman was in that room. So three men came with their prototypes. <laughs> and then uh, because they'd have to have an advertising agency, if they're going to do a market study on this. In the door came a man named Ira Sturtevant and another person. People were introduced all around. And then Ira walked down the table and he picked mine up and he said, well, this is what we're using, right? And they said, oh, no, no, no. That's just something Meg did for talking purposes. And that was pretty horrifying. I thought they never mentioned it was my idea or anything else, but they weren't going to do it. And uh, I said, well, why not? And and they said, well, it's going to be too expensive. It looks like we couldn't afford to make it. So the meeting went on and the uh, other men showed their work. And uh they had uh cushy kind of you know plastic things which weren't very stable. Um they had uh some had flowers on them, some one had a tassel on the cap. And um uh, they were just not quite right. And I kept asking each of them, well, how would a woman collect the urine? Um but, you know well, they'd say, well, go get a glass out of the kitchen or something like that. Just <laughs> no, it didn't. This was not a very good meeting for these product designers. I'm sorry to say for them. At any rate, after the meeting, Ira came over and told me how elegant he thought my package was. And um, at any rate, I went home that night and I told my roommate that I just met the man I was gonna spend the rest of my life with. And that was Ira. So um, it's hard to believe. She mentioned that at his funeral. <laughs> how do these things happen? I don't know.
0: Yeah, it feels like it's lots of personal and professional issues. Things came together for you there, Meg, yeah. Yes, it just, yeah, it's amazing, yeah. And so once you'd got this product over the line, what was the reaction from the medical field and the public at the idea of a self-administered test?
3: People in the company, um, those that had moral problems with this, um, you know, they brought a man in to run the... um, New division, which would be the pregnancy test and other the cosmetics and everything else they were doing for a woman's line. And this man was very upset about this, and his um, family thought this was not something women should do, and the churches are going to be very upset about it. Blah, 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 blah. So I took him into New York to meet with um, Howard Moody, who was the minister of the Judson Memorial Church. I didn't tell him this is the, the most liberal church in the entire world. And so We had this lovely meeting and Dr. Moody looked at this and he said, well, he said, you know, I have so many poor women in my parish and I'll buy these and have them on hand and let everybody know that if they want to be tested, they can come and get their test here. And um, he thought it was a great idea. And so this uh, executive took this idea to his minister in Rye, New York, which is a very wealthy town, and his minister thought it was a good idea too, so that took care of uh, this executive's ideas about it. But there are other complaints by even Ralph Nader's a medical director wrote an article in the New York Times when, it, when we first put it out. He was very, very upset about, about women getting this in their hands and how they would mess it up and not do it right.
0: Because was that the issue? Was it that they thought women couldn't, be trusted with it and wouldn't be able to read the results properly, or was it that they thought they could and would and that knowledge about their their bodies and their their pregnancies Mm -hmm. and and, and this is the early seventies, so this is just in the in the run up to to the the liberalisation of of abortion in in the States, isn't it? That the concern that that women would, would know that information and find it easier to terminate those pregnancies?
3: Well, um, on the other hand, one of the executives said that what if a senator's daughter got a positive and she was not married and committed suicide? Then it would go. The company would lose its business because of that. It's hard to believe, but they really thought this. This was, this was dangerous because women getting an unhappy result are going to do some terrible things to themselves. It, it, it went around so many different ways, uh, and if they got a positive. And they were not married. They would have to take care of whatever was coming next. And um, my idea about that is the sooner the better. I mean, having this test out there before they have to wait weeks for doctors, you know, um, result in the laboratory uh, for them is even better. That's that, that was my thought, the sooner the better. But there's a lot of, you know, it, some people in the laboratory wouldn't even work on this because they thought it was terribly wrong. Uh, they came around in time, but at first they were very upset about it.
0: Because I, I wonder if you might also just describe what the process was before your kit came was made available. Well,
3: um, it, it, it involved a doctor actually. Um, a woman had to make an appointment if she thought she was pregnant and uh, would leave a sample with the doctor, and the doctor would send this urine sample to any one of the number of laboratories that would test it. And uh, that would take time. And um, by the time results went back to the doctor, not to the woman. The doctor would tell the woman whether she was or wasn't pregnant.
0: And so this idea that it would be a woman on her own finding this out and not being, not having to confide in, in anyone else, that was part of the real breakthrough with this, wasn't it?
3: Yes, I, I thought that was one of the best things, that she would find this out by herself. Even then telling her husband that she was married and how excited they, you know, I, I've heard from families later on over time, even from men saying how wonderful it was when they found uh, this little test that they were expecting their first baby. I mean, it's kind of exciting. And then the company never told me this, but they did a, a study uh, in a hospital in New York City with poor women to see if they could actually administer this test themselves and read the instructions. I couldn't believe they did that, but um, they did. And they found that yes, these women, most women could do it. There wasn't a
0: problem. Although that that lack of trust that that seemed to underpin the yeah. the concerns about whether whether yeah. women would be trusted to to do it by themselves. And you know, I wondered if sort of reflecting on on where we are now and, and the moment we're in, how you think attitudes then and and now have have changed, or perhaps in in some ways how they haven't changed.
3: Um. Well, certainly in, the, in this country, in, in the United States, we've just had a big blow—you uh, know, a devastating blow—because abortion has been taken away from so many women for the ability to get one. Uh, it's going to affect mostly poor women. And um, uh, as in the past, even when it wasn't legal, um, wealthy women could find ways to get abortions. They—they they could still do that now, but. Uh, so many poor women are going to be affected by this now, and it's going to be kind of devastating. I, I can't—we—we we can't even get our heads around that here. And um, I think another time, another administration, another—you know—more Democrats get in, they may be able to do something in the Senate to change this and make it more available for women. But we can't go to the Supreme Court for this again.
0: But the, the fact that that they are at least able to to find out that information about their pregnancy thanks to your pregnancy test I you know I, I, I guess it's, it's not it's not a comfort, but at least women have that 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 knowledge.
3: Yes, I think in Texas because they first they're first out to be so um, stringent about their their new laws um, that women don't even necessarily know in six weeks' time that they're pregnant, and they made that the cutoff point. So obviously, if they had an early test, the earlier the better, um, they would know what to do if they had to do something. Um, but now, uh, even in Texas, they have actually, two of their legislatures put up a bill saying that um, a woman is now criminalized, that she has an abortion, and she has a chance of being executed for doing that.
0: It's an absolutely staggering situation to be in. And Meg is there is there anything else you'd like to add to the to the discussion? Well I guess um,
3: I should ask I know you have um the possibility of, of using medical abortion uh in, in, in Britain, right? So the, the pills are a possibility. Does anybody is there is there a problem there? I mean are, are there people objecting to that that possibility?
0: Well it's if, who's asking the questions? No, that's a very <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, I think um, because one of the possibilities in the states is that um, people might be getting mail order uh, medications for abortion, and uh, in some cases that's going to be prohibited. But um, is that the most used form of abortion in the UK?
0: Well, it's it's a really interesting. Question about the and the parallels I think between medical abortion and 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 trusting women to be able to use that at home really remind me of the you know the, some of the issues that you yourself has raised around you know the, the 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 trust of women using pregnancy tests at at home and yes absolutely in in the last couple of years um, as a result of the pandemic we've been able to expand women's access to uh, what we call our pills by post. Uh, service which is used by many many women and you know it's enabled women to access abortion at some of the earliest gestations but it's absolutely seen some of the same arguments about can women be trusted to use it properly will they understand the instructions will they have enough support um, but we know that this is something that you know is, is a really preferred option for for many women and um, and in the states, obviously, it's 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 going to be a key lifeline, isn't it, for for many women who are cut off from legal services? And it's wonderful that that option is going to be available. But sadly, it's it you know it won't be suitable for for all women. It's it's not suitable at, at all gestations. But but absolutely, it feels that you know in that sense, we've we've yeah. come such a long way in terms of technology so that women can, to, to some degree, to a large degree at least, take some of these decisions into their own hands as they were able to do with with your pregnancy test?
3: Well, I think, um, I'm hoping that that's going to be um, um, an answer for many women as long as they are able to get it because there, there are questions now of <clears throat> not being able to receive them to the mail. Um, we'll see what happens with that. Um, and we also have another, one of our judges is considering rolling back the ability for women to receive a contraception. And uh, that's one of our Supreme Court judges. And it's, if uh, women cannot receive contraception, where will anything be? I mean, it's really it's kind of unbelievable. This is like going back to the dark ages. Um, but it was as late as 1965, I think, even married women in Connecticut could not receive birth control pills at the pharmacy. Uh, it took a court case to overturn that, so then I had to go back and go back to that type of consideration. That I just don't know what's going to happen with this country as far as this goes, abortion and contraception. It's it's a, a frightening time.
0: It's a really frightening time, and I think it's a you know a really salutary reminder that reproductive rights they can move forward, but they can be rolled back.
3: Right. But
0: I think some of the technology, there's no putting that back in the bottle. I think, you know, abortion pills are, are one of them, but your pregnancy test is mm-hmm. is absolutely another one of them. So we salute you. Meg, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for all the work you've done for women. Oh,
3: well, thank you, Claire. I really I'm really, I'm honoured to to be asked to be speaking here today and really i'm um i hope you're welcome <laughs> so many of us are going to move to, to, the, <laughs> to the uk so we're come on to, in if this gets any worse okay <laughs> I, I appreciate you really and everything doing your organization i think it's great
1: Oh wow, Meg is just so so incredibly inspiring. She reminds me of um Peggy Olson from from the TV show Mad Men, but instead of designing ads for lipsticks, she's designing technology that's going to revolutionize women's lives.
0: It's just amazing what she's she's done and she's yeah, it's it, it, it is a technology that it's like we just completely take for granted now we expect just to pop into the chemist to to pick this up but what she did was absolutely revolutionary you know the idea that you know you had to go to a doctor or you know wait for for several weeks to be able to find out what information that we now just expect to be to be able to be there at the tip of our fingertips you know in in, in no time at all it's it's been completely transformative both in terms of Yes, you know, being able to share when it's when it's positive news to be able to share that as as quickly as as possible. And, you know, and in terms of women's health, to be able to start antenatal care as, you know, as as swiftly as possible. But absolutely, in in terms of access to abortion for women to know that and then to be able to to make a decision about what to do with that pregnancy. It's, you know, before. Well, you know, around the time that they'd missed their period. It's it's been transformative.
1: I also thought it was very interesting when Meg was talking about some of the concerns around the at-home pregnancy test. You know, could women be trusted to use it safely? Could they cope with understanding the results? These are arguments that we still hear today around women's access to emergency contraception because we're still in the position whereby women cannot just pick up emergency contraception from the shelf they have to have an interaction with a pharmacist um, before they're allowed to purchase it based on this idea that you know women can't be be trusted with a very safe and effective medication so it was just really interesting for me to see those those parallels in in discussions around the pregnancy test in in the 1970s and emergency contraception today. Oh I, I, I couldn't agree more well, that's
0: what we said at the beginning, isn't it? It's, you know, so much has changed, but so many of these attitudes are really pervasive about to what degree can women be trusted to make good decisions about their own health, to be able to to follow instructions. And I think emergency contraception is, is, is absolutely a, a case in point that we still don't quite trust women to be able to to use it when they need it. As you say, it's a, it's a very safe, simple intervention very few contraindications at all and yet still we insist on it being kept behind the pharmacy shelf only available following a a consultation absolutely so many of the of the themes feel unchanged depressingly and on that positive note
1: Today's episode is standing on the shoulders of giants. And after speaking with Diane and Meg, I think we can recognise the huge debt of gratitude we owe these women and how much we can learn from their experiences and the battles fought and won in the 1960s and 70s. If you want
0: to find out more or have been affected by issues raised in today's podcast, please visit our website, vpass-campaigns.org. Join us next time on Reproductive Conversations and get involved in discussion on social media by following at BPASS 1968.